In today's show, I'm going to share what I think is the best elevator pitch of all time. However, I guarantee it's not what you would expect. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard some pretty bad sales pitches in your time. I certainly have. Um, And here is the one that I think is the worst. It's from the American TV show called Shark Tank. On the show, entrepreneurs pitch their ideas to millionaire investors. The show is called Dragon's Den in the UK. It's called Shark Tank in the US. Now, in this version of Shark Tank, the one with the worst sales pitch I've heard, the entrepreneurs are selling an additional lock for your front door. They claim that most front doors can be broken into with five firm kicks. So, to prove their point, they have set up a front door in front of the investors. And to prove how easy front doors are to break into, one of the entrepreneurs is going to kick down the door live on set. And here's the pitch. While it may feel secure, when you lock it, an experienced intruder can get in in about five kicks. Alex, show them how easy this is. Come on, Alex, kick it hard. <laughs> Come on, Alex. Oh, uh, looks. Uh, Come on, looks. Alex, kick it. How much you sell the deadlocks for? <laughs> <laughs> this continues for another minute. Alex keeps kicking and kicking, but the door won't budge. It completely ruins their point. They can't kick down the door, so there's really no need for their product. Eventually, Alex decides to get a pickaxe out. He starts chopping at the door and eventually breaks down the door. But it's too late. The pitch has literally fallen to pieces. Unsurprisingly, the entrepreneurs didn't get an investment. They left the show empty-handed. What's funny, though, is that the product they were trying to sell is actually really successful. They had turned over $4 million in annual revenue. They should really have got an investment. Their business was solid, but their pitch was awful. So, what makes a good sales pitch? That is what we're going to uncover today. But why should you care? You you might not be in sales. Well, the thing is, everyone has to sell. Perhaps you're trying to sell a holiday to your friends. Perhaps you're trying to convince your kids to go to bed. Perhaps you're trying to persuade your flatmate to put the bins out. You have to sell your boss on your latest idea. You have to sell your boss on giving you a pay rise or even getting you some extra time off. Sales is about convincing and it is about persuading. And that's something all of us need to do. But few of us, very few of us, have a reliable set of tactics we can use to convince and persuade. Think about the last time you tried to convince someone. How did you do it? Did you have a strategy or did you say the first thing that came into your head? I'll be honest, for me, it's, it's usually the first thing that comes into my head. I'm bad at persuading. I hardly think about how to convince. So I don't usually get what I want. 
So I have decided to change that. I have spent the last few weeks studying the science behind successful salespeople. And today I will reveal the secrets behind those salespeople. To help, I've invited on fellow podcasters, Biz Bros, who have seven years experience selling. And together we will share tips that you need to convince, persuade and sell. To kick off, let me introduce these guests. They are the hosts of the Content is Profit podcast. Louise and Fonzie have spent seven years learning about the art of sales in multiple different industries, and here they are introducing themselves. My name is Louise, and this is also Louise, my brother. Uh, we have the same name. We're actually brothers from Venezuela. We call him Fonzie. Yep. Um, we grew up in Venezuela. We played soccer. That was our dream. Mm. Uh, we got to play in Europe for a couple of years. We came to the States with soccer scholarships. Um, I played D1. Fonzie got to pro level here. He played six months as a pro. And uh, and then after that, it, we had an identity crash. <laughs> we didn't really know what to do after that, and we took on... The the identity of entrepreneurs. So we tried a few businesses from vinyl stickers to screen printing, and then everything transitioned into what we do now seven years later with content marketing and content production. And eventually it all transitioned into what we're doing now with Content Momentum and the podcast, Content is Profit. Now, Louise and Fonzie didn't have traditional sales jobs, but they always had to sell. In the US, one out of nine jobs are considered sales jobs. But that sort of underplays how much time most of us spend selling. A Gallup survey found that on average, 40% of our time at work is spent doing something called non-sales selling. Now, non-sales selling basically means persuading, influencing and convincing others, not always to sell a product, but to convince others to do something. Louise and Fonzie are definitely both in these camps. They, over the last seven years, have been selling, whether that's literally selling their marketing service or convincing people to listen to their podcast. Right, and that, that's what I see kind of like our story going like post-soccer. We started, you know, the business of stickers. And it, during the sticker era, we learned design. We learned how to put a website together. Then we started doing the T-shirts. Well, the T-shirts we needed to go sell, so... We started, you know, cold calling people and, and we learned a little bit of those skills and then we transitioned into digital marketing. And then you have a whole different, you know, array of skills that go there, like copywriting, you know, funnel building. And all those skills have been, you know, stacking throughout time, right? We put in work throughout time and learned so many things, so many different skills that we, we feel very comfortable now sharing them in front of the mic to an audience. Now, these two have spent seven years gaining these skills, but not all of us have that amount of time to learn. So I've collected five evidence-backed studies that I think should give you a head start on sales. Here's the first. Two researchers, Galanksky and Maddox at INSEAD Business School in France, have studied what makes a novice salesperson more successful. In their 2008 experiment, the researchers simulated a sales negotiation for participants who had no sales experience. This was just like a real-life sales negotiation, except there was a twist. One set of participants were encouraged to sell any way they knew how. They were just told to go in and asked to sell. But another set were asked to empathize with their sales counterparts to, to think about their feelings and emotions. And one final set were asked to go even further, not only to empathize, but to try and see the world through their customer's perspective. What happened? Well, the empathizers secured many more deals than the control group, the one who went in sort of without any strategy. 
But the perspective takers did even better. 76% of them managed to negotiate a deal that satisfied both sides, far higher than the control group, the one that went in with no strategy. Something similar happened with another negotiation study. This negotiation study was between recruiters and job candidates. Once again, the perspective takers fared far better, not only for themselves, but also for the negotiation partners. Galanski wrote, taking the perspective of one's opponent produced both greater joint gains and more profitable individual outcomes. Perspective takers achieved the highest level of economic efficiency without sacrificing their own material gains. The takeaway is simple. To sell, try and view the world through the perspective of the buyer. So imagine you're trying to convince a child to go to bed. Don't just tell them to go to bed. Put yourselves in their shoes. Perhaps you might realise that there is a book they want read to them or 10 more minutes of drawing. Taking their perspective should help you find a solution that works. And look, the perspective taking tactic won't work every time, but the evidence is there. View the world through the perspective of your buyer and you'll be a better salesperson. Louise and Fonzie didn't realise this when they first started selling, by the way, but as time went on, it's something they learned and they called it a mindset shift. I, I, I think uh, people go back to their first sale, right? And, mm-hmm. that, and that can be a very frightened moment. Like a lot of people are very scared to maybe put themselves in, a, in an environment of selling, Maybe because the connotation, right, as a consumer tends to be very negative. Uh, be like, hey, the classic example, right? I'm going to go buy a car. And then you have this car salesman calling you 24-7 or pushing you to towards something that you might not really like. And that was our first experience. Like when we started selling, that's all we knew. Uh, but as you uh, get put in these situations, you start finding about their problems. How can you help you? Like today, our belief is that what we do is 100% helpful and is at the service if we don't offer it to people. So of course we're going to go out there, we're going to dig in. And if they're the right customer, the, the the right person with the right problem and we can solve it a hundred percent. Right. So the mindset shift has been massive from that point on. And, uh, you know, me personally, at the time I was working in a fitness studio, I managed, I went into sales in part because that was one of the only jobs that I could get uh, at the moment. I didn't really want to go to corporate side and I would sell uh, gym memberships. So that put me in an environment where I could put reps in and out every single day. And I, could get a lot of no's because guess what every no will lead you to the next yes right so it was like okay if i increase the rate of no's perfect eventually i'm gonna get a yes and that's when i'm gonna grab that win i'm gonna learn from it and then i'm gonna go into into the next thing one of the things they learned over the years after getting all those no's was the power of mimicry Mimicking the person you're selling to can help secure a sale. I've spoken about this a bit in the past on the podcast, but I really think it's worth repeating. Simply mimicking the tone, the speech pattern and the posture of the person you're negotiating with is incredibly proven to help you get a much better deal. There's one Dutch study, which I've shared before, found that waiters who repeat diners' orders word for word earned 70% more tips than those who paraphrased the orders. These customers, who were mimicked by their servers, were also more satisfied with their dining experience. In a French study of retail salespeople, half of the store clerks were instructed to mimic the expressions and non-verbal behaviour of their customers, and half were not. When the customers approached the salespeople for help, nearly 79% of the mimicking salespeople sold compared to just 62% of the non-mimickers. So those salespeople who are mimicking did drastically better than those who aren't. And that was the only difference in the study. 
Mimicry works because it supposedly makes the buyer feel more relaxed. This is because they trust the salesperson more. The buyer feels like the salesperson is someone like them. The buyer doesn't feel manipulated. They feel like the seller is really helping them. And this is why touching in an appropriate manner also appears to be a way to help someone become a better negotiator. That is right, touching. Now let me explain. Several studies have shown that when a waiter at a restaurant touches customers lightly on their arm or shoulder, customers leave larger tips. One study found that women in nightclubs were more likely to dance with men who lightly touched them on their forearm for just a second when making the request. The same held true in a non-nightclub setting where men asked for women's phone numbers. In another study, fundraisers who were trying to get strangers to sign a petition found that basically only 55% of people signed the petition in the control. However, when those fundraisers touched the passerby, again just for a second, once on the upper arm, that percentage jumped from 55% of people signing the petition to 81% of people signing the petition. Now, I must say, I feel a little uneasy sharing this. I don't think we should be encouraging this behaviour because for many it might seem unacceptable. Touching is is not something that we should be encouraging, especially with strangers. That said, I still think it's worth sharing because there are plenty of people you might try and convince where touching is acceptable. A spouse, a partner, friends, a family member. A light touch on the arm might be all you need to convince your grandma to come along to an art exhibition, for example. Now let's get back to Fonzie and Louise. I wanted to hear what their first ever sale was like. How difficult was it? Here they are explaining their first sale. I mean, you'll be surprised because I'm actually out of in this room. I'm probably the number three top seller, you know, uh, and in this room that I'm standing in, there's only two people, my brother and I. Right. Uh, so it it's funny because I actually it was a matter of just pushing myself. You know, before that, I was doing some call calls, just trying to get in in front of people, trying to get a meeting. And I'm not kidding. I would put it on my gaming headset, right? I had my desk inside of my room. So literally my day consisted of waking up, rolling out of bed into <laughs> my desk, and then finding people to talk to and with my head to just talking to them. And I, I was just pacing. I get super nervous. You know, at the beginning of the interview, my brother is like, oh, Fonzie already got the, the sweaty pits. And it's real. Like I do get the sweaty pits. And I was walking back and forth in my room just trying to literally get in the mindset of being able to call people and accept being rejected. Rejections are a big part of sales and getting used to rejections, like Louise and Fonzie said, really isn't easy. But there are some tactics that you can use to help. Dan Pink writes about this in his book, To Sell as Human. He shares a study that suggests the way you approach a sale can help you deal with rejection. Three researchers, two from the University of Illinois and one from the University of Southern Mississippi, conducted a series of experiments in 2010. In one study, they gave participants 10 anagrams to solve. For example, rearranging the letters take to spell Kate. Take to Kate. Anagram. They separated the participants into two groups. Each group was treated identically, except for one difference. The minute before they tackled their assignments, the researchers instructed the first group to ask themselves how they would solve the puzzles. And then the researchers asked the second group to tell themselves that they would solve the puzzle. So one group 
is being told to ask themselves how they'll sol- solve it. So think, how will you solve this? Ask yourself, how will you solve this? Whereas the other group is being primed to simply big themselves up and say, I will solve this. They're telling themselves they will solve this. Now, on average, the questioning group, the ones who asked themselves how they would solve the puzzle, solved 50% more than the self-affirmation group, the pumped-up group that told themselves they would sell more. Dan Pink says there are two reasons why. By asking yourself how you'll overcome a problem, you start to come up with answers and strategies for carrying out the task. Dan says, imagine for instance that you're readying yourself for an important meeting in which you must pitch an idea and marshal support for it. You could tell yourself, I'm the best, this is going to be a breeze, and that might give you a short-term emotional boost. But if instead you ask yourself, can I make a great pitch? The research has found that you provide yourself with something that reaches deeper and lasts longer. You might respond to yourself, well, yes, I can make a great pitch. In fact, I've probably pitched ideas at meetings like this two dozen times in my life. I think this is crucial motivational advice that you just don't hear. We've all heard the cliche advice, just believe you can do it. Just go out there and sell. Just go out there and do your best. Don't do this. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Not only will it make your pitch worse, but it will be harder to deal with rejection. Don't simply say, I can do this, I can do this. Ask yourself, how will you do this? And how will you take the perspective of your partner? Those how questions are much better than that self-affirmation. Now, one other common mistake that most salespeople make is one Fonzie and Louise have made too but it's really easy to avoid. And I'll share what it is after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Imagine you had to sell a car. How would you do it? Let's face it, you'd probably follow a fairly standard routine. You'd ask the customer what they want, you'd pick a car, list the benefits, reveal the price, tell them how great they'd feel, and then hopefully they would buy. One thing you definitely wouldn't do is highlight a problem with the car. You wouldn't say that the safety record is a little dodgy or that the miles per gallon is below average. Of course you wouldn't. Highlighting a weakness is the last thing you should do. Or is it? See, back in 2012, a few marketing professors set out to test just this. In one set of experiments, the researchers presented information about a pair of hiking boots to participants. 
They asked the participants to imagine they were about to buy these boots. Now, for half the group, the researchers listed all the great things about the boots, like the orthopaedic soles, the waterproof materials, the five-year warranty, and heaps of stuff like that. But for the other half, they included that list of positive things, but followed it with a negative thing. They said, these boots unfortunately only come in two colours. Now, it's not a major negative, of course, but it is a little negative, and it is the only difference between the two sets of participants. And now, remarkably, in the majority of the studies, the people who received that small dose of negative information were more likely to purchase the boots than those who had received the exclusively positive information. Providing a bit of contrast satisfies our negativity bias and makes us more likely to buy. But what do you do if your product is really bad, if it is still years away from being great? This is the case with many startups. Startups have to sell an idea and they struggle because the finished product won't be ready for months. Well, here's an idea again cited in Dan Pink's book To Sell as Human. Now, I will butcher these names, but Zachary Tomala and Jason Gia from Stanford University and Michael Norton from Harvard Business School ran a study to help salespeople overcome this problem with not having a finished product to sell. What salespeople should do, they say, is to emphasise the startup's potential. The researchers put participants in the role of a National Basketball Association general manager. They were told that they were in charge of awarding contracts to basketball players. The participants were given two players that they could pick from. One player had five years of experience and had produced some impressive stats. The other was a rookie who was projected to produce those same impressive stats during their first five seasons of play. The participants, on average, gave the veteran player with solid numbers a salary of over $4 million. But they said for the rookie in their sixth season, they'd expect to pay him more than $5 million. Now this this was irrational because the rookie should get the same pay as the veteran after five years. After all, they'd be the same age at that point and they should be producing the same output based on the information they've received. What's more, there's far less risk with an experienced player. But people weigh potential very highly. So they overpay for the rookie with potential and underpay for the veteran with experience. This isn't just the case with basketball players. The researchers repeated the experiment, this time creating two different Facebook ads to promote a comedian. Half the ads said the comedian could be the next big thing. The other half said he is the next big thing. The first ad, the one that said it could be the next best thing, generated far more click-throughs and likes than the second. People often find potential as more alluring than experience because it's more uncertain. It triggers that curiosity gap and we're keen to learn what it might become. So when pitching a startup, emphasise what the startup will become. Louise and Fonzie told me they'd been applying tactics like this as they slowly learned about them over time. And and over the course of seven years, selling has got a lot easier for them. So that helped a lot of those conversations. But at the same time, right, that's really is really challenging at the very beginning, especially when it's your own business. And you're like, we need to we need to sell because if not, we don't eat. Right. So that puts you in a position where we can go into that. But that puts you in a position of uh, maybe reactiveness. Maybe your mindset is in a scar in, in scarcity mode. And that might not be the most effective way for you to tackle these problems. So that was the start of something beautiful that now is, you know, it's been seven, seven years <laughs> and uh, it has its fruits now. So we're very proud of that. Yeah. We're, we're eating at least, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Even though it took Louise and Fonzie seven years to hone their skills, I'd argue that they understood how to create a good pitch from day one. Here they are walking through how they got their first sale. Now listen closely and try to pinpoint the most important aspect of their pitch. So I called this restaurant. I just did some forecasting. Hey, if you spend the same amount of money in here, these are the results. This is what I could potentially do. And this is also a proposal of, of a campaign that we could potentially run for you. Did you hear it? Did you pinpoint it? Well, it's their attempt to sell value. They try and highlight what you will get if you buy. They did some forecasting. They showed what the campaigns would look like. Essentially, show the value the buyer would get and not the service the seller offers. There are dozens of ways you can showcase value in your pitch, but my favourite example, again, comes from the book To Sell as Human. Arguably, it's the most extravagant elevator pitch you will have ever heard, and I think it's the best elevator pitch of all time. It took place way back in 1853. The pitch was for a new safety feature for an elevator. So an elevator pitch for an elevator. It sounds dull, but just hold on and listen to the pitch. See, back in 1853, elevators were fairly unsafe. If the rope snapped, everyone in the elevator was in trouble. It would hurtle towards the ground and crash. Elijah Otis, an American craftsman, found a way around this problem. He attached a wagon spring to the platform and installed ratchet bars inside the shaft. So, if the rope did snap, the wagon spring would activate and save the elevator from plummeting. Obviously, this product had huge potential, but as you probably know from listening, explaining how it works is fairly boring. Plus, it was really expensive, so how could you convince thousands of buildings across the country to install this safety feature? Fortunately, Elijah Otis had a great pitch idea, one that would showcase the value of his product without boring the audience. Here's how Dan Pink describes the pitch. He rented out the main exhibit hall of what was then New York's largest convention centre. On the floor of the hall, he constructed an open elevator platform and a shaft in which the platform could rise and descend. One afternoon, he gathered convention goers for a demonstration. He climbed onto the platform and directed an assistant to hoist the elevator to the top height, about three storeys off the ground. Then, as he stood and gazed down on the crowd below, Otis took an axe and slashed the rope that was holding the elevator in midair. The audience gasped, the platform fell, but in just seconds the safety brake engaged and halted the elevator's descent. Still alive and standing, Otis looked out at the shaken crowd and said, All safe, gentlemen, all safe. Showcasing the value of your offering is a surefire way to secure a sale. And a good enough elevator pitch will keep selling for years and years. Elijah Otis started his company over 150 years ago, and today it makes 13 billion in revenue each year. And, you know, it's no surprise, the initial pitch is easily the best elevator pitch of all time. Okay, folks, that is all I have time for today. I want to say a massive thank you to Louise and Fonzie for coming on. As I mentioned, they are fellow podcast hosts on the HubSpot Podcast Creator Network, of which Nudge is part of as well. Their show, Content is Profit, is a perfect show for anyone looking to grow their business or side hustle. Each week, they walk through tactics to grow with fascinating guests. If you're looking for an episode to start with, go and listen to when I joined on the show. It's called Influence or Manipulation, Behavioural Science and Marketing. I've left a link to that show in the show notes. 
I referenced Dan Pink's book To Sell as Human a lot during today's show. It's a fantastic book. And if you have to sell, you should definitely read this book. I've left a link to buy it in the show notes. And while you're in the show notes, please go sign up for my email newsletter. You'll get more psychology-inspired tips in your inbox every single week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let me know what you think. And if you have any feedback, please do hit subscribe wherever you listen to the show. Thanks again for listening.